Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. All right. Well, welcome. So here's the question. Have you ever questioned when things didn't go as expected in your life and thought, I don't know why it's this way. It makes no sense. God, what is going on? Where is this going? Anybody ever had that question or am I the only one? Well, welcome to installment number five of our series, Coached by the Greats. And if you're here and you, uh, this is your first day here with us, uh, no worries. Uh, we're in a series, but uh, everything is going to be self-contained today in terms of you understanding. You didn't lose anything other than the fact that there have been some really fantastic lessons that we've had about how God wants to develop our faith. And so if you want to go back to iTunes or or our website and listen to those, that would be great. But uh, no worries if you're new today and haven't been here for part of the series. This will stand alone. And for those of you that have been, it will also have elements that will build on what we've talked about before. In fact, actually today, if you're newer here and uh, have not done this before, I would love to meet or re-meet you uh, immediately following service for a five or ten minute, what we call the doorway tour. Uh, I will take you around and whatever uh, leaders of the church I can find, I will introduce you and I'll tell you just a little bit about who we are and I'll try to be done in five or ten minutes uh, so that you can be on your way and enjoy this beautiful day. Let's uh, dive into our verse for this series that we've been reading each week. It is in Hebrews 12, and it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And the question we've been dealing with in this series is, looking at the scripture, it says there's this cloud of witnesses, these greats of the faith. Everybody who's gone before us is in, in, in and it's painting this picture in there. They're in the, they're basically in the stadium of heaven, in the, in the stands of heaven, cheering us on in the game of life, looking at, down on us, praying for us, seeking our best. And, and the question we've been dealing with is, what if we could take some of the greats of faith mentioned in the Bible out of those stands, bring them into the a huddle of life with us. And if they gave us one whiteboard lesson, what would that lesson be? And we've had some pretty good ones over the last few weeks. We've looked at Jesus and Adam and Eve, and we looked at Noah and Abraham and Joseph, and uh, last week with Dusty, and, and they're all historically well-known people. They have typically a lot of credibility with us because we've all heard about them. But when we deal with only those types of greats, when it comes to faith, I think there's a disconnect we still struggle with. And that disconnect is no matter how much I tell you or any other preacher tells you, these greats of the faith are exactly like you and I, we don't always buy it because we don't believe that our names are going to be written in the history books and remembered for a long time after we die, right? And so we don't always buy that. And that that's actually is a problem for us in even understanding what Christian faith is all about. Because we too often equate great faith with great people. And that betrays the default setting of our heart that we've been trying to dispel in this. That we think faith is about our ability to conceive of a dream and discipline and perform in such a way so as to achieve that dream and have all the courage to do that. When actually faith, as Jesus teaches us about faith, as a follower of Jesus, is not about our focus on our ability has nothing to do with that. It's not about our ability to conceive of a dream 
and get ourselves to get there, but it's faith in the gospel. It's faith in God's promise fulfilled in Jesus. It's faith in God's ability, and that's the focus of where our faith lies. Today, we get to actually look at uh, at least five different people. I actually can't tell you how many people we're looking at today because I don't know from our text exactly how many. And interestingly enough, most of them are not named Oh, some of them are. One of them we're going to look at is Elisha, but we're going to actually spend a little, very little bit of time on him. Another one is a guy named Naaman, and you may have heard about his story in the Bible as well. He's actually a top general of a pagan nation surrounding Israel. And the story that we're going to get from him about faith is a little bit on how God wants to grow our faith and how he wants to focus that growth for us. But really, we're going to learn a lot as well from four or more unnamed people and looking at their faith in this story. And the, the lesson, the whiteboard lesson, just in summary for the, today, is simply this. God often works in unexpected ways through unexpected people. Now, I realize if you've been around for the whole series, that may strike a chord with a, a point we made in one previous message. But the beauty about the Bible is that the Bible tells through all these stories, it, it allows us to look at similar issues from completely different lenses and learn a new, deep, completely different lesson. And that's the case for today's passage. So let's dive into the passage. Second Kings 5. It begins with this. It says, Now Naaman, this is the general, of the foreign nation, was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. And if you understand the historical context, Aram at this time is rising in power while Israel is declining in power. And Naaman is the top general of their army. And it goes on, it says, He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, Leprosy in that day was a general term that they used for all sorts of different skin diseases. It may have been what we know as leprosy today, or it may have been something different. But regardless of that, we know that it was important enough and significant enough for them to mention. And if it was mentioned in that day, it meant it was a skin disease that made everybody afraid to be around you. Everybody wanted to be as far away from you as possible. Can you imagine the difficulty of being uh, one of the most honored, successful publicly visible leaders of your day and be yet be struck with a disfiguring disease that made people shrink from you for fear that they would catch it. Text goes on and says, Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. You know, we often expect great faith, like I said before, to be synonymous with great leadership. And yet one of the greats of the faith of the Bible is this captured slave girl. Her faith in God's power and goodness motivates change in someone's life so amazingly. In fact, it motivates change in the life of the very person who likely killed her father and her brothers and all the other men in her village and captured all the women that she knew and took them as slaves. And yet, in that context, this simple faith of this young girl is used by God to bring one of the greatest leaders on earth to faith in God. Because God works in unexpected ways through the simple faith of unexpected people lived out. And most of us think of ourselves, don't we, as unexpected people. 
We don't expect God to do something significant through us. And yet God's intent is that through the faith of every single one of us in this room, that some hope, some change, some significant difference will be made in this world because of us. And like this girl sharing her belief in God being good, which I know that's, isn't that really amazing? That she could share her belief that God was good in light of all that actually had happened to her. But isn't that the picture of redemption? that the Bible paints for us? Isn't that the picture of Jesus' salvation in all of our lives, that every single one of us has pain, has hurt that we have caused ourselves, and pain and hurt that other people have caused us because of their sin towards us, and yet God is constantly pursuing us to heal us, to bring wholeness to us, to bring blessing, to bring wisdom, to bring comfort, to bring provision. And this little girl's faith was not in herself. She was the weakest of the weak in society, right? Her faith wasn't in her now master who was a great person in society, but her faith was in God's goodness. And she didn't have any theological savvy. She didn't. She wasn't winning a great debate. All she did was just share the hope that God is good, even in the midst of her circumstances with someone else, whether they received it or not. And sharing your simple belief that God is good and willing to be there with us in spite of all the pain and all the struggle that we know is a reality of life is really the lesson of faith she brings to us. That that is what changes people's lives because God's presence and God's power inhabits that kind of sharing of our faith with other people. Think about it. The little girl doesn't even have faith to pray herself for the situation. But she has faith in God and His goodness, and she has faith in another person to facilitate that transaction with God in Naaman's life. So her hope, her hope is just a simple invitation. Just like a simple invitation to your small group or a simple invitation to church or a simple invitation to allow you to pray for someone. We often make sharing our faith in God so difficult, but it's simple. It's as simple as this girl's expression of hope. And it's interesting to me, this last week as I was uh, thinking and preparing for this, I had, a, I had a, an appointment with somebody that I respect greatly and I've been praying for because they're, they're not convinced in their faith. And he's on a journey and he doesn't attend church regularly anyway, anywhere, doesn't attend Quest on a regular basis. And yet God even used his faith this last week because while I was in the office with the appointment with him, he just decided, well, I'm going to take a risk because I just talked to somebody else who has a need and I got to pray for someone I had no knowledge of their issue and had never met them before, just because he shared hope that God might meet this person through allowing somebody to pray for her. It's just so simple to share our hope and our faith that way. God works in unexpected ways through unexpected people like you and I. text goes on and says this, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. I would love to have seen that conversation. Faith, the faith and hope of this little slave girl taps into a compelling motivation in Naaman that makes him go to the king and ask to go see this guy. And the answer from the king is, by all means, go, the king of Aram replied. In fact, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothes. So picture this. A slave girl gives hope, saying you can be healed. He goes to the king, and the king says, okay, go. 
for all he knows, it's a snake healer. I mean, I mean, really, it's the, the credibility of who shared it. And he, and he says, I'm going to send you a letter. Not only am I going to send you a letter to go to my this, this nation next door that we're hostile with on a regular basis, but I'm going to send $3.1 million. That's the equivalent of what he just, what the text just said in our today's, in our today's dollars. And so imagine Naaman is leaving. There's a boatload of some of the best troops of Aram going with them to protect not only him, but to protect this $3.1 million. And they're walking down the road or riding down the road on their horses with pack animals and servants and everything they need for the trip. And they come to the Israeli, Israeli border and they cross and everybody scatters before them. Why? Because they've never seen somebody come like this unless they're about to get raided. So everybody's hiding. But he goes directly to the capital, Jerusalem. And the king of Israel sees him coming. And like, can you imagine what he's thinking? He's probably going, what's going on? I mean, he's coming, the top general. Why is he coming? He's probably coming to demand tribute. I don't have the money. Or he's coming, or he's coming to demand that I make an alliance with him to go to war against somebody else. Or he's, or he's coming to make a demand on me that I know is going to lead us into war with him. This can't be good if the top general's coming. And on the other hand, you've got the king of Aram and Naaman thinking that if this miracle-working prophet is anywhere, he's going to be in the court of the king. So Naaman walks in and hands the king of Israel a letter. And here's what the letter was about. It says, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant, servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. That's the kind of letter you want walking into your office, isn't it? You are responsible. Your enemy sends you a letter saying, you are responsible to cure this dude. What would your reaction be? Well, I think it would probably be similar. Verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? And it all becomes clear to the king of Israel. The king of Aram, in his mind, really wants war, but he doesn't want to do it unprovoked. He needs us to provoke it somehow. So he's sending someone with an impossible demand so that when his guy goes home, he can say, he insulted my top general and wouldn't do what I said, and he's justified to go to war with me. And the king is terrified. And he tears his robes. Now, if you understand what the tearing of the robes is all about in the Bible, they did this when they were struck with extreme grief or fear. And usually it was accompanied by prayer and fasting, seeking God for a resolution. But in this instance, we don't see the king doing any of the prayer and fasting. We just see him turning towards grief and fear. And when Elisha goes on, the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes. Let's stop there. Let's stop there. The king of Israel is overcome with terror and grief and doesn't pursue God. What does that mean? It means there were some people in the palace or near the palace around this king who wasn't pursuing God, who were faithful and believed that God could answer and that believed in God's promise and his power and his goodness. And they sent a message to Elisha. It doesn't have to be the great person. Sometimes it's the people around that person who have the faith to accomplish God's dream and God's vision. And that might be you in your workplace. Elisha sent the king of Israel this message. Sex goes on. Why have you, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. 
So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, Naaman's agenda, what is it? Naaman's agenda is to get healed. And he came fully loaded with everything possible he could ever imagine he would need to buy his healing, to get his healing, to make sure it happened. But God's agenda doesn't always go along with our expectations. God's intent in this passage is that Naaman would know that there is a prophet of God in Israel. Translated, that Naaman would know that the God of Israel is the one and only God, that all-powerful true God that could answer this. And picture this again. Elisha leaves Jerusalem, goes out into the rural hill country of, of, of Ephraim in search of this prophet. And, and again, you can imagine all the people scattering before him in fear that they're going to be raided. And by the time he gets to, Na- to Naaman's door, there's no one in sight. Maybe they're hidden, hidden behind rocks and can see from a distance, but there's no one in sight. And, and all of Naaman's entourage, the hundreds of people with him, are all lined up to have this great experience because the prophet is here and God chooses to work in a very unexpected way. Verse 10 says this, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, can you imagine this? A great general, the greatest general of your enemy comes to your door. This honored man shows up and what do you do? You don't even come out to say hi. You send a messenger. Can you just picture that for a second? Can you think that this messenger walks out the door? And I'm, probably, I'm sure he probably goes, um, Hi, guys. Uh, I know you came here to see the, the big prophet. He's not coming out. But, um, well, he kind of, well, General, he, he told me to tell you to go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And silence. Awkward silence. Everybody's going, I can't believe the affront. The guy doesn't even come out and he tells him to do this. And I just love the picture. Can you imagine the messenger standing there going, um, hope you have a great day. Yep, I'm going back inside. And just leaves him there. And how does Naaman respond? But Naaman, it says in verse 11, went away angry and said, I thought... Now, whenever we say, I thought, isn't that exactly what we say when we're about ready to state our expectations that were not met? I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. You see, we all have a way we think God will answer us and come to us. That God will show up to us when, when we need healing. We have a way we think that's going to come. When we, when we need Him to speak to us, when we need a miracle, whether it's a healing of, phys, of our physical body or whether it's getting over some anxiety or whether it's getting over an issue in our marriage and our marriage becoming stronger or whether it's bringing our kids into a better place or whether it's a job solution that we need or a problem in our workplace that we need God to show up for. We all have an expectation of how he's going to do that. And God often does things in unexpected ways through unexpected people. Naaman comes to this and he thinks he's got the whole picture. There's going to be this kind of 
almost magical, beautiful ritual. We're all decked out, ready to experience this and engage in this. And the prophet's going to come out. He may ask me to say, I will or I do to something and do some stuff. And I'm going to, this is going to be this amazing encounter with God. And I'm going to be honored because God's going to come to me. And, and Elisha is going to love, this prophet's going to love coming out and caring for me because I've come loaded to make sure it's worth his time. And he feels really blessed. And I'm going to take care of this guy that's part of God's power. And yet he didn't even come outside to say hi to him. He just sent his nervous, fidgeting messenger telling him to go get wet in the muddy river. That's what he did. And Naaman goes on with his eye thoughts saying, Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. You see, we've got expectations what faith will be like, how God will act. And when that doesn't happen, we tend to, don't we, wonder out loud, oftentimes angrily, what's up with that? I mean, sure, I can understand the fact that it's unexpected and he feels disoriented and surprised and disappointed. We can understand all that about them. But I think there's at least two things behind this that are are more important to focus on today. And the first of that is behind all the disoriented surprise of Naaman and all of his I thoughts, there is this expecting, demanding even that God give him an explanation before he acts and does something. Don't just tell me to go dip times, dip seven times in the river. You gotta tell me why. I mean, after all, Naaman's probably thinking, I'm a man of authority. I'm extremely well educated, one of the best educated people around. I'm very successful. I lead people all the time. I don't do anything without understanding why. And isn't that how we approach our faith all too often and our obedience with God all too often? We wanna understand why, don't we? Before we do something, especially if it's something a little bit odd or a little bit different or a little bit uncomfortable or awkward or, or something that's ordinary, God owes me an explanation. I mean, think about it. Why would I want to obey God in my morality if I don't understand why I should do that, if it just seems like it's keeping me from something I would really like to do? Why would I want to obey God and my money if it makes it difficult for me, if I don't understand how it's going to make it better for me? Why would I want to stay in a job that's really difficult where I feel like God, well, if truth push comes to shove, I feel like I'm probably supposed to stay there, but I don't really like it. Why wouldn't I just take off and go somewhere else? Why would I stay in a tough marriage when I've walked, watched other people uh, seemingly get out of those tough marriages and seemingly be happier, but I feel like God's knocking at the door of my heart. I have this gut sense that I know what's right and I'm supposed to do it. And I want an explanation about it. Or maybe it's as simple as uh, you want to get out of your job and God never lets the door be open and you're struggling with the fact that God wants you to stay there. And you have the thoughts, God, I don't want to argue with you because you're God. But before I do anything, you need to explain yourself so I can understand. 
Or maybe the path God is taking you on is all too much like Naaman's. If you understand the geography of the day, Naaman comes way, way down, several days' journey from the northwest all the way to Jerusalem because he thinks that's where his answer is going to be. And then all of a sudden he gets there and he finds out, no, this isn't going to be a great thing in some great temple somewhere or some great palace somewhere. I've got to go out through the muddy hills to meet this guy way back northeast. And then he gets to that guy and the guy won't even come out and see him. And he says, no, you've got to go all the way over to east to the east here and dip seven times this muddy river and he feels like life is going in circles and sometimes in our struggles with God we feel like things are going in circles too because we don't get the answer we don't seem to get the resolution there's things we really want God to do but it seems like every step we think we're getting closer it seems like there's another thing that goes on and God owes me an explanation before I go further there's a lot of people that I've heard talk about this. I heard Andy Stanley talk about it this last week and reminded me of it. He says, sometimes we as Americans go to the place of demanding an explanation with God so quickly because we're not, we're not familiar with the idea of a sovereign king. Everybody around us, they're elected officials, and most of them have, uh, most of them have won by a 51% or 52% margin of victory, and we treat God like that. And it gives us the right to vote on the idea, and it gives us the ability, even if we know that we have to do it in the end because they're the elected official, we at least can demand an explanation. We are entitled to an explanation before we do something. And, and so sometimes we say, when we feel like God is talking to us, we say, God, I think you're asking me to pray for this coworker or, or this neighbor, and that's really awkward. And can you explain exactly how I'm supposed to do this and how this is going to turn out and how this isn't going to be embarrassing and how I should go about doing this explanation, please. Or we think, God, I think you're asking me to make this decision in my business or to make this financial move. And I want to know why. I want to know how this is all going to work out. I want to know the plan. And Or, we, or maybe God asks us to, to reconcile some relationships. Maybe God's asked you to go to a brother or a parent or somebody and apologize for something that happened years ago. And the question is, Why? How is this going to be good? How is this opening old wounds that haven't been talked about for years going to be anything but uncomfortable and difficult and embarrassing and picking old sores? And God, how is this going to happen? You need to explain this before I do it. And we operate and we pray like God owes us an explanation. And therefore, a lot of times we hesitate in our obedience because we don't want to do something until the explanation is satisfactory. But that's not faith. What if God doesn't owe us an explanation? What if God is like, well, God? I mean, the essence of faith is not, faith is not what, uh, not, faith is not faith in the what or the how, as nice as it is to know that. Faith is not faith in understanding or wisdom as good as it is to have those things. Faith is not faith in something, but it's Faith in someone. Faith is not faith in the what, the vision or the dream, or the how, the path, or the process to get there, but it's faith in the who, in Jesus, in the gospel, in the good news. And God often, not always, does unexpected things through unexpected people because he's trying to strengthen our faith in him and him alone.
Now, don't take this too far. If you take this too far, you're going to say God doesn't welcome questions. And the reality of the Bible is God is completely fine with questions, lots of questions, even annoying questions throughout much of the Bible. And, and God wants us to grow in wisdom and understanding, and that's commanded to us in the Bible. And he, and he doesn't always do things in unexpected ways. Sometimes he does things in very expected ways. But the point of this lesson is, that is really the focus of our faith. Do we put our focus on the what, on the picture of our expectation and the dream and what we think it looks like, or do we put our focus on the who in God? But that isn't the only struggle that Naaman has or you and I have. There's actually, I think, a a deeper thing underlying that, and I think it's our struggle with our pride. We already looked at verses 11 and 12, and we see Naaman frustrated that he's not honored, frustrating that, frustrated that he has to go to some podunk little river in Israel and he can't do it in front of his adoring fans in Damascus in the river. And then he goes on in verse 13 and says, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleaned? See, I think one of the things that I've struggled with, and I think many of us struggle with in our faith, is that we have this expectation, almost this demand, that faith is going to bring us greater dignity, greater honor, increased stature at every turn. And it does in many ways, but, but at every turn? And Naaman is this important man, and he feels slighted. He pictured things very different, and even Naaman's unnamed servants see his pride and they take the risk to confront his pride and tell him about it and before we finish the pride point the kind of humble faith that we need to grow in that God is inviting us to only grows in community great faith is never grown in isolation all by yourself Naaman would have missed God's good plan for him had it not been for these friends who were a part of his ordinary everyday life who they knew he trusted them enough for them to confront him. So who are the people in your life who are people of faith who will speak into your life when you need it? Who are those close enough to you in the daily ordinariness of your life that when pride starts to become a barrier to your faith, they can see it and they can talk to you about it and help you through that? Great faith is forged in a relationship with others. Back to the pride point, because that's an, I know where we all want to be, right? Naaman's servants see the pride and challenge him. If it's something noble, if it's something grand, would you have done it? They ask. And I think that really speaks clearly to many of us. We're all fairly successful. We're managers. We're leaders. We've had a measure of success. And I think a lot of times it's easier for us to do something great for God than it is to be obedient in the small, the ordinary things, the the things that are a little slower to come to fruition, the things where the return on the investment doesn't seem quite as big as we think we should demand because in our businesses, we're used to demanding a bigger return on investment faster. Sometimes the growth, the healing, the success we hope for and believe God has promised comes more slowly and unexpectedly like Naaman. And God is testing our faith, refining our faith in the process. But maybe, maybe we don't relate, relate to the word pride. So let, let, me, let me paraphrase another perspective. Uh, again, I'm borrowing the general idea from Andy Stanley on this. Uh, I think we struggle sometimes with this because we're not ancient people. 
we're modern. We're sophisticated. We know more things. We've figured some things out of how God did some things that nobody else has ever known throughout most of history. And they all treated it as only God could do this. And we know about DNA and we know about weather and we know about reproduction. And we have knowledge now and it creates in us this sense of control and maybe even this arrogance. I mean, think about the first magic show you went to where you uh, actually figured out the trick, right? Uh, You realize that they didn't actually cut the woman in half, that there was a little compartment that they tucked their legs in, and it really was just a trick. And what happened? Your view of the magician just got lower, right? Your respect for them just got lower as if you figured it was really magic in the first place and wasn't a trick. But with all that understanding, since we now know how God did some things, we're not as impressed because we feel like we have some control over it. And it comes to some arrogance sometimes because we know and we have an expectation and we have some control. We don't just submit. We don't just believe. We don't just obey You know, because we don't have to do that in life. We don't have to submit like we used to to the aging process or to diseases. I mean, all you need to live longer right now is a pacemaker and some diabetes medicine, a little exercise, right? And we know how we live longer. We can keep ourselves alive longer, right? I mean, we know plenty of people who would have been dead without those things already right now. I mean, there's no miracle to that. We have a certain amount of control. And even having children is not that big of a miracle now. We've figured out how, you know, to keep women and babies alive in difficult childbirth. And we've figured out even how to conceive babies better and stuff. And so, you know, if it would have been a 100 years ago, Wendy would have died when she gave birth to Derek. And Derek probably wouldn't be here either, but they're still here. And the reality is that some of you wouldn't be here today if if technology hadn't figured out how to help people conceive because your dad and your mom couldn't conceive very well and technology figured it out. And so voila, you're here and maybe one or two or four twins along with you, right? I mean, because technology does that. And in theology... And in the world of the divine, because we've figured things out and we know how the magician did it, we feel like we have the margin to push back because we can explain things. We have a measure of control. Like, and so we treat God like the magician or we treat God like the politician with the 51% margin rather than the sovereign absolute king. Before I obey, before I change, before I give up my control, before I advance, before I take this risk, you owe me, God, an explanation. But again, what if God doesn't owe us an explanation? What if God is God? What if just because of us figuring some things out, he still is God? And in the story of Naaman, we see Naaman finally relents and he humbles himself. And gives us the lesson that the flip side of the coin of great faith is always humility. God often does unexpected things through unexpected people in unexpected ways in unexpected timing because he wants our faith to become rich in humility and trusting him. Question, what has God been asking you to do as an act of faith in your life right now that you've been resisting? Because you feel like you don't understand it. You don't have the explanation. Is it humbling yourself in a relationship? Is it giving something up that you think is so small it's petty? Why would I have to give that up and it's insignificant? Or is it giving something to someone else that feels like it's either too much or just 
uh, maybe even too little, and it just doesn't make sense. Why would this be so, so important? Or is it sharing your faith and telling other people around you openly that God is good and God's a real part of your life or praying with people when they're in need, and even though it's awkward or embarrassing or feels embarrassing? Maybe for some of you it's being baptized. I mean, that's what Elisha is asking Naaman to do here. Baptism was something that was around back then. And Naaman understood that if he did this, it was a public declaration of his sin that he was going to be making and his need to be forgiven. It wasn't just him going and taking a bath. He understood that. And he had to not only, not only that, but he had to do it in front of a hostile crowd in a land of people that despised him and might even make fun at him for being so vulnerable. And some of you are like me. You were baptized as, as an infant and you've grown in your faith to the point where you've owned it and you've realized that one of the things God wants of you is the, a public declaration of your faith. And the, the Bible does teach that one of the primary ways to do that is baptism. But you've struggled with that. You haven't wanted to do that. And, and it's been difficult for you to do that. And some of you have just recently actually maybe come to faith, maybe in the last year or so, and you haven't wanted to be baptized as an adult, even though you understand that's what Jesus teaches you to do. Because it's a stumbling block. You don't want to get up and give the testimony. You don't want to give up and get your hair wet in front of everybody, right? It's a stumbling block. The amazing thing in baptism, and even in this story, is that Jesus is the better version of Naaman. I mean, Naaman was truly a guilty man with blood on his hands who needed the humility of asking forgiveness and needed the forgiveness in his life. But Jesus was sinless. He had no need at all to be baptized. And yet when we see him to to go be baptized with John the Baptist, he comes to John the Baptist and he says, baptize me. And John the Baptist says, no, no, I shouldn't be the one baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, I need to be obedient in all that the Father has called me to do. And he led the way for us in humility of faith to be baptized, knowing that people could misconstrue who he was. He was sinless, but people by him being baptized would have said, look at that sinner getting And sometimes we struggle with even sharing our faith because we're afraid that somebody's going to look at us and say something and and construe something about us and put a stereotype on us that we don't want to hold. And it humbles us. It's awkward and we don't want to do it. And Jesus is saying, I want that kind of faith. It's kind of like the girl, the servant girl. All it is is telling the story of how God is real, how God is good, how God is alive in spite of everything and giving hope to Naaman's wife, just stating the simple belief that God is good even when things haven't been so good makes a tremendous difference. God inhabits that. And whatever it is that's holding you back in faith, let me just be the voice of the servant girl that we don't know her name to you. God is a God of hope. He's real. He wants to answer your situation. He wants to lead you. He wants to save you. He wants to empower you. He wants to provide for you. And let me be the voice of Naaman's unnamed servants to you, the people who are just like us, and we can't argue with that. If God had asked you to do something dignified or grand with no risk of embarrassment, something that wasn't ordinary, something that wasn't small, something with large results, something noble, something big, something with huge return on investment, would you have done it? 
then how much more if God asks you to do something very simple, maybe even something hidden, should we obey and show our faith without explanation and let him explain now or let him explain later, but to not hold that demand over him. Let's just pause for a moment as the worship team comes. and I want to just ask you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you to pause and engage in prayer and ask God what he wants to say to you now about where he's asking you for that next step. Where have you been asking God for an explanation and refusing to take the step that you think you, you're pretty sure you know? Maybe that, maybe that idea came to mind even while I was speaking. Something popped in your mind and said, that, that fits for me with that. Even if not, just let's take just a moment to pause with some quietness and ask God, where do you want me to apply this today? What do you want to speak to me? Holy Spirit, we just ask you to come now. We trust you to give the right thoughts, the right impressions, the right instinct. Because you want to speak to us. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we welcome you. I feel like God may be uh, wanting to speak to some of you who have given up on praying for healing in an area. I don't know whether it's physical or emotional, but I think there's some who have given up praying for healing because it's been too long and it hasn't seemed to come. And it's hard to pray for healing because we have expectations. We want the answer now. Sometimes the answer doesn't come now and it disillusions us, but God still wants us to trust him and pray for it. So Lord, we give those needs to you. We ask that you'd pour yourself out among us. Whatever it is, whether it's healing or whether, whether it's something else, whether it's somebody in a tough job and knowing that you are saying just be at peace and be where you're at now and it's been really hard to stay there. We've wanted to get out and it hasn't worked. Lord, just come and give us the faith to be where you want us to go, want us to be, no matter how small, no matter, no matter how great it is. And Lord, I pray that this week for each and every one of us that you would open the door for us to share your hope. Even if it's just a simple statement of God is good and I care for you and I'm praying for you. Lord, open a door for us to share your hope that you can be involved in changing people's lives because of it. Thank you for your presence with us today. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we don't have to trust our own abilities. We don't have to to trust our own wisdom, but we can trust you to lead us. Thank you for touching us today. Let me give you the ending of the story. Verse 14, it says, So he went down. Naaman went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and he said, Now I know, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. 
the promise of God is that he will come to you. He will save you. He will bless you. He will bring healing to your life. Maybe in unexpected ways. Maybe through unexpected people. Maybe through unexpected circumstances and unexpected timing. But he is good. And he does save. I just want to invite you as the band begins to play again to worship. And thank him for that. Thank him for that goodness. And and as we do, we can also celebrate uh, communion today. Uh, and remember how good and how great a sacrifice he paid for all of us. Uh, just a reminder, if you need to be gluten-free, we do have gluten-free that will be remaining on the table so you'll know which it is. And so just come and worship, come and enjoy communion. great to see you, all of you unexpected people. God wants to do unexpected things through unexpected people like us. And it just comes down to us sharing our hope. Sharing our hope. We don't have to be theologically savvy. We don't have to have debate skills. We just get to share hope. And God's presence changes things for people. Our last song said, hearts are yearning, right? Hearts are yearning. There's tons of desire for peace from anxiety. There's tons of desire for comfort from depression, from stress. Our hearts of our community are longing for hope. If you came here today and you were looking for some hope in an area and you want prayer for healing, prayer for any area that's going on, don't leave today without that prayer. And let's go have fun being hope to people this week. God bless. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.